0: What can culture do? What can culture do? What is culture?
1: Culture unites us.
2: So a very warm welcome to our breakout session on the yellow stage. This breakout session is called rewriting the museum label and of course we've got a great speaker also for this breakout session. Bill Sherman, I'm sure you all met him already yesterday and at this point, thanks again for your lovely words. He's the director of the Warburg Institute and professor of cultural history in the University of London School of Advanced Study. And he worked very closely with Martin Roth at the Victoria and Albert Museum, as you probably heard before. And we are very thankful that he is here today. And we are going to be spontaneously joined by Catherine Flood, who you just now heard on the main stage, so uh, thank you for being so spontaneous and of course as always after a couple of minutes the discussion is open and uh, we would like to debate with you and get your input, but first please welcome Bill Sherman.
3: Thank thank you very much Jennifer, thanks for the opportunity to, to have this conversation. Um, also, let me in advance thank Catherine Flood for joining us. A lot of the work I did at the v and uh, was in dialogue with the curators, who have a lot more right to talk about the topic that I'm going to at least raise. And so I thought it would be better, not only because you've already heard how brilliant she is, but also because the topic really belongs as much to Catherine Uh, as to uh, anyone else. So I wanted uh, Catherine to join us. But I'll start with a little bit of a kind of provocation, a framing provocation. We'll start off with that, and then uh, Catherine can join us. And as I said to her already, if you ask any very difficult questions, they go to her. So it's nice to to pass over the mic. (laughs) No. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to use the time uh, to speak at the beginning of this breakout session to suggest that the time is now right to rewrite the museum label. It's easier for me to say this, now that I no longer work in a museum, but it's safe to say, I think, that few people who work in museums, and probably even fewer who visit them, find that labels next to objects give them what they need. Indeed, I don't think it's going too far to say that the genre, which has been deployed without change and almost without variation, for virtually all of the world's cultural institutions, for virtually their entire history. I can't think of another genre that has changed less, in fact, than the museum label. I don't think it's going too far to say that this genre does not do justice to the desires of the people who look after objects in museums, to the needs of the people who look at objects in museums. and most importantly, to the objects themselves, the nature of the objects, the needs of the objects. So let's start by reviewing what a typical label says, ideally, but not in a legible font and in a place where everyone can see it. It provides the name of an artist or a maker, sometimes with birth or death dates. It provides a title, sometimes one given by the artist or maker, but sometimes a more generic description, sometimes even a nickname by which it has come to be known, but which becomes the name. It provides a date, known or conjectured, usually of original production. It provides, very importantly, the museum's own object number, classification, shelf mark, some kind of object number, which is almost always in a shorthand code that the visitor has no idea what it means. But it provides all kinds of important information, uh, often about the department it belongs to and also often about when it was acquired. And I can come back if we have time to something that Catherine knows very well, which was a classification called AP at the VNA, which means animal products. And it's a very, very interesting classification. That was very important in the early days of the Victoria and Albert Museum and be, has become very important for the exhibition on food that Catherine is uh, working on right now. Uh, finally, it usually provides the name of, let's say, one previous owner, uh, especially where they're the ones who are responsible for giving it or selling it to the museum. Now, what's not on the, on the label? What's not on the museum label? One, the amount of money it took to buy it. Uh, either when it was first sold, uh, or when it was last sold to the museum, and that would be great to put on every label. Second, that's what, usually when we do tours of, of galleries. It's what everybody wants to know: how much did you pay for this? And it's fascinating because it's never what you think. It's never as uh, as straightforward as you think. It's it's often the most expensive things that we spent less least on. Uh, So it's a very interesting issue. The number of hours it took to make, another very interesting uh, piece of information that could be on the label. The names of people who were not the named artist or maker who were involved in making it, and every object is made by more than one person. The names of the conservators or technicians who treat the objects, make them safe for display, And in some sense, and with mixed results, try to take it back through time to when it was first made and to what the makers first intended. Sometimes intervening so substantially, especially in sequential treatments, to become actual collaborators in the making of the object. And again, I have some interesting examples if we have time. Uh, maybe another one, because I'm a historian of use and a historian of particularly um, books and marginal annotations in books. Very interesting that we very rarely have any statements on a label that's related to how it was received or used. Um, and in a museum like the VNA, which was very much about objects designed not just for uh, fine art, but also decorative applied industrial arts, That's crucial. That is what the object is until, as Catherine says in some ways, it enters the museum when it is no longer used. Uh, Another thing it doesn't have usually is the languages spoken by many international visitors. It's usually in the one language of the National Museum. Um, What I think is probably important in these cases is it's often not in the language of the people who made it or for whom it was made, Uh, Also, with surprisingly few exceptions, nothing interactive or digital on a label. Cooper Hewitt's uh, Bloomberg pen is a good example of something starting to use digital technology. No questions. How often do you find a question on a a, a label? They're supposed to provide the answers. Um, Very few questions. Sometimes a question mark, but very few questions. Uh, And then finally, and this came up, I think, in the conversation that we just heard, no other collections where the same objects are held or where related objects are held. Let's say this is one of two of something, and it's related to something else. Very few uh, interconnections between institutions on labels. So, where does that leave us? Uh, It's clear, I think, that museum labels could say all kinds of things that they do not currently, for whatever reason, say. But I want to suggest that rewriting the museum label involves more than just adding information, like prices or collaborators, more than giving credit to conservators, more than translating it into foreign languages, more than slapping a QR code on for visitors with their smartphones. It requires us, I think, to rethink what museum objects are, and in particular, allow us to present and appreciate them as more than one thing. So museum labels do more than just identify the object. They usually serve in the context of a gallery or of an exhibition. I'm looking at our Europe galleries that we launched in 2015. They usually serve as an exemplary instance or a particularly good example of something, of one thing that they are there to show you. Picasso's drawing technique, 19th century spoon technology, 16th century Bibles cycladic figurines, whatever it is they're supposed to be, this is a really good example. But of, ca- of course, if my time working with more than 2.3 million objects at the VNA, more than 100 curators, more than 50 conservators, taught me one thing, it's that objects are always more than one thing. Um, A very good example, just right off the bat to to give you a put down a marker for a discussion is that the V&A was actually part of something bigger called the South Kensington Museum, which was run by a department in the government called Science and Art. The Science and Art Department spawned two museums, the V&A and now what is called the Science Museum across the street, but it was originally one collection so what's interesting is, is at the V&A, we had collections related to music. They had collections related to music. We sometimes have the same object, but exemplifying completely different things. In their case, about the history of technology. In our case, the history of design manufacture. So it's a great example where even across the street, we have objects that were once part of the same collection, uh, but now exemplify opposite things. Um, Now, the last thing to say then is how might we rewrite the labels to give more agency to the artists, to the curators, to the visitors? Uh, I have some ideas, but I would be very happy to hear from other people who have heard particularly interesting examples or indeed used different examples themselves because, uh, as I said, it's an it's a area of museum practice where there's very little experimentation, relatively little experimentation, and I think it would be really great to hear this. So I have uh, a couple of different examples that maybe we can tease out in the, in the conversation, but I hope that gets us off to a start. And I hope, Catherine, you'd be willing to join us, as I said, to uh, speak with more authority, at least, about what curators uh, with labels actually can and cannot do.
2: Um, I have one question.
3: Yeah.
2: Do you feel like there is something that you would like to see on every label, or do you feel it would have to be very individual for every, either for every institution or for even every object?
3: Um, one thing I would like to require is that there be more than one label for every object. Okay. So that's the first thing i would I would do. I don't in a way, I think as you say it it depends on the purposes and on the object. Um, but there's there's always more than one thing to say and more than one thing for, for one more than one way for it to matter. And I think one way of forcing that is to go simply from one to two.
2: Okay,
3: and that would be a, a start.
2: And is it a
1: discussion that is already active?
3: This is a good question.
1: Um, yes, definitely. I mean, I think to to begin with, every object in its particular context in whatever gallery or exhibition it appears in has to have something different said about it every time it's, it's brought out. Right. Um, I think the... Uh, The other thing to say is that you can't write a book about every object and put it on the wall and expect people to read it. Um, People have fatigue when they're in a a gallery situation about how much information they'll take on board. So in each scenario, you kind of select um, what you're going to say. Um, But talking about the two labels, I just want to give one example again from the Disobedient Objects exhibition Um, because I think we were kind of very concerned that we didn't want to take people's objects... As a museum, and then assume the authority to then tell everybody about them. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, we did want to have the exhibition to have a narrative. So we had a dual label system. We had grey labels with the kind of key curatorial text that mm-hmm. we wanted to communicate. Um, and then we gave the person who'd made or used the object exactly the same word count. Um, but apart from sticking to the word count, we committed not to censoring what they said. Um, and I think that kind of brings up to me what's one of the most important questions about labels is who writes them and Mm -hmm. where does that authority come from Mm -hmm. Um, and also what kind of voice do we do we have as institutions and I think the kind of standard curatorial voice can be very neutral and quite dull Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and one thing I enjoyed about the labels and discipline objects, was that there were so many different tones and emotions brought in um, by doing that. So that, that was a, an interesting experiment. And
2: have you ever experienced uh, any objects without any labels at all?
3: Okay. Yes. Um, I think that's been an interesting experiment and in some ways can be equally effective to the opposite, which is providing 10 labels mm-hmm. for one object. On the other hand, uh, we were talking about this earlier, there's a danger in that case of being quite elitist and assuming that you know, this is the, the old tradition, really, from, I suppose, 19th century, where, well, really, you ought to know what this is. Mm-hmm. And so there's a danger that if you come to something with no label and you don't know what it is, that you feel y- you're left out or you've missed the point. I mean, on, on the other hand... I've seen sometimes experiments where labels have been swapped around or it mm-hmm. isn't clear what uh, which object mm-hmm. and which label match and I think that's an interesting experiment because one of the joys uh, that a lot of the labels take away from the visitor is this curiosity mm-hmm. this question what am I looking at mm-hmm. what this curiosity uh, label is not a genre in general to provoke curiosity it's almost to take it away or to answer uh, so I like the idea but again the, as long as there isn't this danger that we're um, seen to be assuming you should know what it is uh,
2: no I, I was thinking of uh, especially if you if you may have um, very modern objects yeah. or, or unknown objects that you can't really identify, that maybe it could be something to to just experience the art and and have your own view of what you think it is or what it does with you Mm -hmm. without being maybe told what you are supposed to be seeing.
1: I think maybe you can do both. Um, I think for me, label writing is about giving people a jumping off point, Mm -hmm. uh, a way into the object without closing down the meaning of that object which I think is very difficult to do in, in practice, but to to start a discussion <laughs> if, mm-hmm. it, if it can. And mm-hmm. I think that goes back to what you were saying about labels that ask questions, yeah. and particularly with contemporary objects. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think something possibly you also need to talk about is this sort of idea of authority and where that comes from, and especially in an age where we're kind of constantly hearing about post-truth. Um, but... Yeah, to kind of yeah, the able to give a starting point. Okay, thank you. Any can questions? I,
3: before we uh, jump in, yeah. can I just can I give of you one, one quick example, which is um, something I wanted to mention, but I, I didn't want to use up more time and make you make me stop. <laughs> so, so the the example that we uh, really had a blast with in the VNA right when I arrived, it was an experiment that um, we in the research department. Uh, decided to undertake because Neil McGregor's History of the World in 100 Objects is such a standard now template for objects telling their histories, you know, object oriented approach. And we were frustrated by it because partly because the VA doesn't have so many obvious kind of star objects or it was a different kind of museum. But we also realized that we had a different approach to the object. And so we did an we did an experiment really, and it never went public. It was completely internal, and it was called a history of an object in 100 worlds. And it asked if you return uh, the, the the multiplicity not to the history in which one object is one example of one thing a hundred times, but one object is 100 examples, and 100 movements, and 100 voices. And so we did this extraordinary. Uh, series like Dragon's Den, where we had all of the uh, curators come and pitch. It wasn't just curators, it was anyone who worked in the museum. And we had security, we had maintenance, we had everybody come in. And usually it was their favorite object, but not always. And they told the most amazing series of stories, and they were limited to five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was just extraordinary to see. But one of the most memorable examples was an object in the Europe galleries, which we've seen some pictures of uh, on that wall. And it was the curator who was responsible for the David Bowie and the Revolutions show, Jeff Marsh. And he showed this uh, image, this painting, and he said, uh, my presentation is basically uh, 100 labels. So he presented it to us Mm -hmm of course he didn't have time, so uh, being Jeff he handed it out and it was completely fully done, it was, it was already finished uh, but he had, a, he had a history of an object and 100 labels and it was a brilliant example yeah. Yeah.
1: I just have to give one <laughs> other example um, when a very um, dear colleague of mine retired, um, he gave a talk which was sort of a warning to young curators um, and he showed a series of labels um, from the past which had just got it absolutely wrong <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was a 19th century painting of a woman in a kind of cottage interior leaning over this wooden thing that looked like a crib. And the um, the label told you all about sort of maternity and the sort of the mother and the child in Victorian painting. Huh. But what they'd missed was that it was a trough for proofing dough and she was making bread. <laughs> 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 so sometimes we get it very wrong. Very wrong. <laughs> Thank you. So.
0: I'm sorry, I, I can't top this. <laughs> I'd just like to ask you one simple question. What is, the, what is the role of the audio? And again, you know, you go through an exhibition, it's very frustrating. It is the curator, apparently, who selects the objects that get the audio, and the viewer is often interested in quite different ones. Yes. And in fact, why don't all? Ex- exhibits in a special show habit. And with respect to the fuller labels that you've described, I would just ask you, when you have a crowded exhibition, everybody is trying to peer at the labels. You don't get an opportunity to look... You know, you're studying the labels and not looking at the object or the painting. So, in a way, that defeats the object.
3: Yeah, I mean... The, it, no, but the, the, the question of, of the technology... Uh, of the label, I think, is a very good one. And again, it's surprising to me how much the world has moved on technologically, but with surprisingly few exceptions. I mean, we had in the Europe galleries, again, uh, an, an experiment, really, with an audio tour or an audio guide, and it, it really was um, is not standard practice in, in the museum at all, except for Again, some of the exhibitions recently, David Bowie with the Sennheiser, we have our Sennheiser technology here. It was a, an absolute game changer, really, to be to have it individualized and driven by your location. Uh, so at, at least that way... Whoops, I've just lost my technology. You, you talk, I've lost mine. Um,
1: back. Yes, at the, the V&A, we've been using um, audio for our... Um, exhibitions that have a strong music content and most recently in opera and um, so it happens seamlessly so as you approach a particular work the the track changes in what you're hearing um which i think is excellent um but i do have um one problem with audio guides and that is that it becomes a very individualized experience um certainly you're liberated from kind of looking at the text rather than the, the object um but it kind of, you're in this bubble um, and you're much less likely to acknowledge your other visitors or talk to them. Um, and I think I'm quite interested in finding ways of getting people to interact with each other in the gallery space. Um, and I think the other thing about using audio, and, and this is not for for text and explanation, but um, the way in which kind of music has an emotional effect in the gallery and um, we used a soundtrack in disobedient objects that kind of pulled together sounds from lots of the people protests lots the of people. the actual situations yeah. on the street where the objects were used um, and I had, sort of had this moment of nervousness that it was it was very emotional and was that okay was that a, a reasonable form of interpretation we're so used to having these kind of neutral text-based approaches is it okay to use people's emotions in the gallery
3: and, and can I add one more thing which is Uh, Actually, first to say that at the end of the David Bowie, at the end of the Pink Floyd, um, the uh, end of Revolutions, there's one room where you take off your headphones and you watch. It was Woodstock. It was uh, video. And that made it a, a final collective experience. And it was even more powerful, I think, because you've been in your private space, sharing individually. And then the other thing was to say that at the VA they were developing when I left, and I don't know if it's being practiced yet, something very important, which is the ability to add audio files to the internal catalog system. So collections management system, which has our uh, kind of behind the scenes cataloging information. There's a there's the ability to add fields of all kinds. And a lot of information of course is there that isn't on the label. So that's another idea, is simply showing what the museum already knows about the object and already says about the object. Easy to do. We have it all, all there in the computer system. But now we have the ability also, whether it's a curator, uh, a maker, you know, with um, many of the things we have uh, at the V&A, we're lucky that we have the uh, the makers and designers around and we can talk, but also people who owned it, people who used it, people who care about it, people who don't know what it is. We could add lots of interesting uh, oral history, in effect, Mm -hmm. of the object and make it part of the catalogue.
4: Yeah, thank you so so much. Uh, That was really inspiring for somebody who works in the museum and everybody knows this, of course. I would like to extend this slightly a little bit towards ethnographic museums. Um, first of all, uh, Nick Thomas some years ago published a very small article, museum is method, where he mentioned that the le- uh, the label should become uh, a research um, interface between uh, th- that displayed and the public who reads it. So I, I this reminded me of this, but I would like to enter to something different. We have. Uh, Quite a lot of museums reopened, ethnographic museums reopened, and it's very frustrating that uh, when if 10 years ago you re- looked into the exhibitions, you had mask Sepik 19, uh, 1919 collected Heinrich Harrer, and you have the reopened museum, totally new, with brilliant, wonderful new materials for the label, and what is written on it is Sepik mask Heinrich Harrer 1919. Yeah, And this also reflects this non synchronous carrying on of. Uh, not only wrong information about um, crutch versus uh, bread making, but uh, entire systems of wrong estimation of what we had seen in 1919. So I think the problem is much, it goes much further than just enriching the, the, uh, the, um, the information. Thank you.
3: Yes, this is exactly right. I mean, one of the things that I think is so powerful in museums that are specifically devoted to bringing together different cultures is precisely difference, and yet when we put it into our classification system, we, we we know this is this goes all the way back, you know, this is not a new problem, but it's the most visible place I can think of, where that uh, filter of a of a an, you know a kind of homogeneous, um, in many cases imperial or colonial context mm-hmm. makes it something when in fact. The word for it would have been very different. This is why it's not just a matter of translating our label into Greek or Chinese Mm -hmm. or whatever. That's often, it's a translation of category. It's a translation of, of what the thing, what you're saying the thing is. That's much more complicated. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think there's huge potential for seeing exhibitions and gallery redisplays as moments of of meaning making because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. when you start to put things on display you start to get information back which is fantastic you know i'm a poster curator and suddenly something that you thought was anonymous somebody else is telling you they know the author and it was their brother and etc right. etc cetera, et cetera, and people have views about it and you see you start getting this feedback um and you know but it's, it's really important for that to be Recorded and not just to stay in the curator's head, but then we ought to have a mechanism for doing that in real time and feeding it back into the exhibition. Do you feel like
2: you are already on the on the right way, mm-hmm. on the right path, <laughs> um, or is it in your head? Is it so? Has
1: it already made like its way? I, like <laughs> I said, I
3: don't speak, I don't work in the museum anymore, so <laughs> um, easy for me.
1: I think we're experimenting with things like the. Um, Single object in a hundred yeah. stories, yeah. Um, and with doing dual, dual labels, I think we're we're at least starting to experiment and play with it. Okay. <laughs>
2: there, my thank you so much for all your talk. Um, my question just would go on what you just said. This moment of participation with the audience, with source communities. Do you have any idea? You said you're experimenting. How we can we get that systemized? Like, is there a system like software skills? When you, as you say, you, the curator gets the information, oh, this was not more like that, or it was like that.
1: How can we do it in a system? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's about just. I mean, at the VNA we really struggle with our collections management system because we have a template that has to. You know, to be able to deal with the most kind of intricate, fantastically complicated, you know, four poster bed with all its materials and to deal with a, you know, a leaflet from a protest. Um, And we're expected to follow the same protocols in cataloguing everything. <laughs> so we already have a problem, but I think it's, yeah, it's about having um, something that's easy and flexible to use so that you can, you've got the field, you've got the ability to upload um, all that contextual information that you get. So I think, yeah, it's about looking at our um, our systems and um, making them as flexible as possible.
3: But if I could put a request in or a plea in, I think, again, it's very difficult uh, as many of you will know for museums uh, museum professionals to, to speak to each other and I think exchanges mm-hmm. um, the more opportunities not just networks but actual proper embedded like being a, like the military having an embedded journalist I think embedding people into different systems where things mm-hmm. can really take take root and transfer I think this is or at least where you're just challenged mm-hmm. I think is a really important thing yeah. Um there isn't enough opportunity for that. Um, this is Leonard Boy from Amsterdam.
0: I would like to, to comment to you a little bit on the fact that inside the museum we have this constant debate, of course, between the educational department, marketing department and the curators. Uh, I totally agree with Bill that we can add much more on the label as we want and that it's very important to be very precise and to be more uh, definite in all those interpretations and so on but then you have of course the educational department start talking back and what then
3: (laughs) Um, (laughs) over to you (laughs) i'm not going anywhere Um, near this one (laughs) um
1: yes i absolutely recognize that scenario and um when i Began my museum career a long time ago now. Um, there was you know, a very clear set of rules about how you could write and not using the passive voice and this and that, and it was quite kind of daunting to try and fit into that um, mould. I think things much more dialogue now. Um, I think we do recognise that the editors in our interpretation departments have a lot to offer in making the information more accessible and clear. But I think it's really important that that is is an actual dialogue and that we do kind of hit back and insist when we need to. And I'll give you one example from, again, from Disobedient Objects. Um, One of the um, LGBT rights banners that we showed um, on the the label that the people who made it wrote, they used the word cisnormative. Um, And our editors even and we said you can't edit this but they were really concerned about that that simply was a term that most people wouldn't understand um but our argument was well within the context of the label they might get the meaning from it and they might go away and find out and it's actually a really important concept for people to take on board so we shouldn't be editing out terms just because people find them difficult um and we we won that battle
3: (laughs) that that was a very diplomatic answer um (laughs) And I know because I was in the room <laughs> that her current exhibition project had quite an interesting uh, issue, which is about food, the politics of food, food design. Am I allowed to even say that? Yes. Sorry, I hope I haven't <laughs> revealed some <laughs> secret now. But the problem with this one, in some ways, was because food is so popular with you know TV chefs and you know endless beautiful magazines with gourmet food. You know there was a lot of pressure on yeah. you. From the marketing, in particular, marketing communications, the shop, you know, oh, yeah. great opportunity here, but not if you're going to be too political. Mm. So, did that? Re- do you feel that was resolved? This is a, a, a good example, actually.
1: Um, it's ongoing. I'm yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> thinking one of the Tims in the audience. Yeah, That's Tim. Um, um, but actually Sorry, I will, I will say with that that we did and um, we do um, market research for all our exhibitions now um, and we yes, did we, we did for the food exhibition um, and it came back with amazingly positive results that yes people love food on all the levels that we imagine but they were also extremely interested and up to speed with the with the political angle and um and didn't necessarily feel that adding politics to food took the joy out of it. It's more about um, seeing that the two can go together. Um, but yes, it's. Uh, I think as we, the financial situation in museums kind of demands sort of levels of um, visitor attendance. There's the tensions between the curatorial, the marketing, the education, um, are problemi- problematic. Ongoing, as you say. <laughs> yeah.
2: but you were talking about um, exchange and, and communication between museums and people who, who work in that field. Isn't that also about communication, that everyone sits at the same table and actually has tries to figure out a, a goal together, that you don't have the fight of people against each other, but mm. everyone is pulling in the same direction? No,
3: that's a very um, optimistic view of okay. the museum world. I think there, there's more competition, even, especially maybe especially within your peers okay. and within your own city, where you you're trying to get the same people to go to you instead of the place across the street. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And I think, for instance, with the V&A and the Science Museum, which, as I said, were one institution for their first 60 years of life. They, they they really are competing more often than collaborating. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the frustrations, in a way, for those of us who were not responsible. It was easy for me to say. You know, I thought that we had a lot to say to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we join up? We even had, uh, this is airing Dirty Laundry in some ways, we even had an exhibition about the same pioneering Victorian female photographer in both museums across the street from each other but they didn't refer to each other and they didn't uh, in any way invite visitors to to enjoy or learn from both in dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. I think Part of the issue is sort of poverty of time. Um, that Everyone is so busy that it's very easy Absolutely. It's very easy to have a template for how something works and then sort of stick to that and everyone knows the mechanisms and the machinery. Um, and as soon as you step out of that, you're demanding more time from your colleagues. Um, and I have to say that with exhibitions that I've done, I've been incredibly grateful that people have sort of enjoyed working differently, but it, it does stretch us physically (laughs) so
2: we have time for one last question anyone have a last
4: question at the back Thank you very much uh, for this discussion. Uh, we talked a lot about the objects. I have a question about the makers of the objects and, and their information on the labels. So you mentioned sometimes you have birth dates and death dates, but in some museums you put also the, the locations or the place of birth. Or, and um, I was thinking also about the discussion yesterday about art and nationalism, sort of what does it bring to us to, 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 to add this information and how much information do you think there should be about the, the, the artists or the creators of the objects? Uh?
1: territory um i mean i think i would yeah sort of refer back to what we were saying that i think it's just dependent on every particular situation um but it's also i mean something that we deal with in a museum of art and design rather than just an art museum is that those kind of categories just simply don't fit many of the objects um you very often don't have a named maker um or as bill said there are many makers that don't get acknowledgement um, we saw a poster from the gorilla girls earlier and um they did a fantastic project because their whole campaign is about um sort of putting women back into the museum and so they they rewrite labels for museums and kind of try to reveal those hidden makers who are very often um female um, especially in the 19th century. Um,
3: I was going to just add, I think it's very interesting that not only where the person is from, but I think in a lot of cases, I think of Russia in particular, lots of examples that are so important, but also where is the person, where, where is the work situated kind of conceptually, what are the models? You know, I think, it, again, it's not just one place, is it? An object isn't just made in one place, it's made by many places. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, the person who's preeminent Russian artist is actually in Paris or something like this. So
1: it's being written on the label,
3: yeah, uh, you have French or Kandinsky German. Ah, uh, there we go. Mm. Yeah. There we go. Yeah.
1: Malévich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Well, thank you so much for this very interesting discussion. Bill Sherman, Catherine Flood, thank you for being so spontaneous. And thank you all, of course, also for participating. We've got a very short break now and then we come to the last session followed by our last breakout session. But I just wanted to let you know about these little pieces of paper saying what took you by surprise. You'll find them on on the tables and you are kindly asked to just write a couple of sentences and then you can uh, leave it and they're going to be collected so just th- maybe th- that that's you know and
1: yes exactly yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. exactly <laughs> so thank you everyone thank you, thank you.